Come tonight to Exodus chapter 11, which records what God will do to Egypt, the first prediction of the plague on the firstborn. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All those officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go! You and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. In works of sovereign power, come shake the earth again. I wonder what Graham Kendrick and Chris Robinson had in mind when they wrote those words. And if they meant anything to you as you sang them just now, rather than just singing them out of habit, what did you envisage God doing when you asked him to shake the earth in works of sovereign power, to inspire fear in everyone who sees God in action? It's a question worth pondering Because in the Old Testament, perhaps the ultimate demonstration of God's sovereign power is the killing of every firstborn in the land of Egypt to set his people free. Firstborn of Pharaoh sitting on his throne, right the way down to the firstborn of the slave girl grinding at the mill, and the firstborn of all the cattle as well. God has previously demonstrated his power through a series of mighty acts as he unleashes nine terrible plagues on Egypt. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, the plague on livestock, the plague of boils, the plague of hail, the plague of locusts, and the plague of darkness. 
None of these demonstrations of God's sovereign power were sufficient to make Pharaoh change his mind about refusing to let all the people go. So the last, ultimate, and most terrible plague of all is the killing of every firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. I sincerely hope that a repetition of that was not in someone's mind as we sang in works of sovereign power, Come Shake the Earth Again, a few minutes ago. And we may struggle with the way in which the act, actually we might even call it an atrocity, is celebrated in the scriptures. Earlier in the service, we read the opening verses of Psalm 136, which quite unabashedly, and without any apparent hesitation whatsoever, holds up the way in which God struck down the firstborn of Egypt as an example of how his love endures forever. Really? Are you serious? How can such an appalling act be possibly be held up and celebrated as an example of God's love? We clearly have a major problem here. It's precisely this kind of thing that gives God and all those who worship him a bad name. If that's the God you believe in, then what does that say about you? Isn't the world a better place without that kind of religion? It's an entirely legitimate question asked by people who on the basis of passages like this sincerely believe that their worldview is a lot better for not having God in it. So let me explore this question a bit and see if I can go a little way towards rehabilitating God, though I can't guarantee to do so. But firstly, let's think about what's meant by the word love in that constantly repeated phrase of Psalm 136, his love endures forever. It's a steadfast love. It's a love that expressed in loyalty, covenant faithfulness. It is a relational word. It's not a kind of global, general feeling of beneficence to the entire creation If I have this kind of love for you, it means I will be true to you, I will be devoted to you, no matter what, through thick and thin. It's quite an exclusive word, actually. We're used to the idea that God loves everybody, in the sense that he's well disposed towards everybody and takes care of them. That's not quite what the word love means here. This is the kind of love that binds people into a covenantal relationship marked by commitment, loyalty and devotion. In other words, Psalm 136 celebrates God's love for his people, for the nation of Israel, whom he has redeemed and claims as his own treasured possession. It is a fierce, intense loyalty that he has towards them. And when they are oppressed, enslaved and mistreated, he comes to their rescue. And those who have enslaved and mistreated his people get their just deserts. Is that kind of love. <clears throat> I don't know how many of you here would have watched the 1985 Arnold Schwarzenegger film Commando. Any, any viewers of Commando here? You're not that kind of television watchers, are you really? Arnie plays John Matrix. He is a retired elite black ops commando who launches a one-man war against a group of South American criminals who have kidnapped his daughter. 
People who measure these things put the body count at 81 as he blasts his way through everyone who gets in his way and tries to stop him at rescuing his daughter to whom he is devoted. It is a movie that unashamedly celebrates violence and people who watch that kind of movie and enjoy it feel no compassion whatsoever for anyone who gets in Arnie's way because they deserve it. They've got what's coming to them. But it is a film that celebrates a father's love for his child and his determination to rescue her no matter what. Nobody else matters to him. And he's prepared to kill as many people as is necessary to get her back. That's the kind of love that's celebrated in Psalm 136. And we can see how that works for a 1980s action film, but is that what really God is like? But the perspective of the psalmist is focused exclusively at this point on how God's love is demonstrated through the rescue of his people and the destruction of their captors. A film which I wouldn't have watched had Tom Fletcher not recommended, to, recommended it to me is Machine Gun Preacher. I suppose if people haven't watched Commando, you haven't watched Machine Gun Preacher either. Anybody? David has. Great. It is the story of a committed Christian whose mission is to lead armed raids to rescue children who have been abducted by the Lord's resistant army in Sudan. And the film closes with Sam Childers, who is the real-life machine gun preacher portrayed in the film, asking viewers of the film a question. He says, If someone broke into your house tonight and abducted your child, and I told you I could bring your child home, Does it matter how I bring them home? It's a good question. Does it matter what I do to get your child back? As far as the Lord is concerned, Israel is his firstborn son. And after centuries of mistreatment, it's time to bring them home. And he'll do whatever it takes That's why his deliverance of them is celebrated in the psalm as evidence of his steadfast love. Because it's his love for his people who've been oppressed and exploited and mistreated and held captive against their will. But what about the Egyptian firstborn, we want to ask? How can any of that killing possibly be justifiable? Exodus 4.23 is quite explicit as to why God does this. Moses is to say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he can worship me. But you refused to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. Again, we might expect those words coming from a 1980s revenge action movie, but from the mouth of God, they are harder to accept. Of course, in that day and age, huge significance was attached to the firstborn son. Primogeniture was a vital component in how society was organised. 
And in some cultures like that of ancient Egypt, where the boundary between the human and divine was not all that clearly defined, there was a belief that the eldest member of the family was closer to the gods, and therefore more sacred, with a greater degree of divine potency. The eldest son was a father's most treasured possession. The eldest was the first to open the mother's womb. Jacob's blessing on his eldest son Reuben in Genesis 49.3 sums up how firstborn sons were perceived. You, says Jacob, you are my firstborn. You are my might. You are the first sign of my strength, excelling in honour, excelling in power. Firstborn son is testimony to his father's procreative strength. Good firstborn son, you know you've made it. There's something about firstborn sons. Apparently, more than half of the presidents of the United States of America have been firstborn sons. And worldwide, a significant number of powerful political leaders have also been firstborn sons. Something about that role and identity. Sorry, Sean. So the significance of the firstborn didn't lie at all in the fact that there was a flesh and blood human being made in the image of God. That wasn't the significance of the firstborn. The significance lay in the fact that every firstborn son is a symbol of his father's power. Symbol of Pharaoh's potency. Because in that culture, the firstborn son is the one who inherits everything after the father dies. Gets the father's name. The father's power, the father's honour. The line is guaranteed through the firstborn son. The estate is secured. Everything is perpetuated through that son. And in a culture based around succession, honour and status, nobody matters more than a firstborn son. The wife, she's just there to provide the firstborn son. She doesn't do that, you find another one who will. That was Henry VIII's problem. The whole point of having a wife in that culture is to secure a son and heir. Wives are replaceable. A firstborn son is not. There was no higher honour that God could bestow on his people than to name them as his firstborn son the people bound to him in steadfast love. That's why God says to Pharaoh, you've taken my firstborn son away from me. I'll take your firstborn son away from you. It's a clash of honour, if you like. Clash of power. Because the life of a ruler is bound up with that of his people, everyone in Egypt loses their firstborn son. We thought the other day about that significant phrase in Exodus 2, 23, the king of Egypt died. Did that make any difference to the plight of the Israelites? No, it didn't. The way they treated was not down to one man's megalomania. The entire country was complicit in the enslavement and exploitation of God's firstborn son. So in the clash of wills between God and Pharaoh, the entire nation pays a terrible price for Pharaoh's intransigence and the death of all the firstborn in Egypt is the price to be paid as God redeems his people in slavery because they are his firstborn son and he will stop at nothing to get them back. 
But we still want to ask, don't we, is this the kind of God we want to believe in? Is this tribal God worthy of our worship? A God who callously slays all the firstborn of Egypt just to show Pharaoh who's boss as he redeems his people. How do we respond to a God who demonstrates his commitment to his people by slaughtering so many Egyptian firstborn? And for those of us who are Christians, this story is not the reason why we claim God as our own. Like the Israelites, we've been redeemed by the death of a firstborn. But in our case, it's God's own firstborn son who freely laid down his life for us to redeem us from sin and death, to set us free and make us God's own people. We don't worship the God who takes life to redeem his people, but the God who lays down his own life to redeem us, who gives us life by laying down the life of his firstborn son in our place and for our sake, dying that we might live. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In Jesus, we see the universal love of God that we don't see in Psalm 136 and we don't see in Exodus. This is not a tribal God who wins our loyalty by beating our enemies. This is the God whose love is universal and whose love is demonstrated supremely in self-sacrifice. But it's the same God. It's the same God who shows the same fierce loyalty, commitment and steadfast love to us, his people. But it's the blood of his own firstborn son which seals God's covenant with us for all eternity and which binds us to him forever as the people whom he's redeemed at such great cost to himself. Same God. You catch a glimpse of that through a glass darkly in the book of Exodus, that whole stuff about the firstborn son. We see it clearly, most clearly, in Jesus same God. The book of Exodus makes it abundantly clear you really don't want to go up against him. You take him on, you'll end up losing big time like Pharaoh did. But through Jesus, this God shows he doesn't actually want to fight you. He offers you peace. He invites you to be reconciled to him. To discover for yourself that steadfast love that will keep you through thick and thin and even in the end through death itself and bring you safely home into his presence for eternity. That is the God whose love does endure forever. Because that's the love that gives us eternal life. Through a mighty hand and the outstretched arm of Jesus on the cross has redeemed us and made us his own and has an undying, passionate love towards us. He's the God to whom we belong. He's the God in whom we can put our trust. He's the God whom we worship.
Let's pray. Lord, there are some pictures of your love that we find far easier to relate to and understand than others. Thank you that yours is a love that's stronger than death. Yours is a love that stopped at nothing to set us free, to redeem us for your own. Thank you that you did not withhold even Jesus, your one and only Son, but gave him up for us all. We are not worthy of that love. And yet you set that love upon us anyway. Thank you for your grace which defies our comprehension so much that we find difficult to understand and get to grips with. But in moments of doubt, enable us to sense the witness of your spirit in our hearts saying, you are loved with an everlasting love. And may that knowledge be enough for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.